Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al-Samad. We're up to, up to number 17. It's been a little bit of a break because we just, again, life got in the way. But we can start with uh, our garage or our driveway or whatever, <laughs> wherever <laughs> the car sits. Uh, but Sam, you go first this week. What have, what have you been driving? All right. So I am driving the uh, latest edition of the Lincoln MKZ, uh, which for, uh, I guess, probably about the past decade, at least as far as cars, has been uh, Lincoln's their main volume model uh, for cars. Um, and it just got a... a significant update for uh, the 2017 model year so you know about middle of last year uh got an got a new front end um with uh lincoln's new style uh grill uh, it's new uh sort of jaguar-esque grill um along with some interior updates and sync three um and an updated version of the ford two two liter gtdi four-cylinder engine and notice i did not use the word ecoboost there um why, why did you not use the word ecoboost because uh starting last year when they launched the uh the refreshed mkz and also announced the uh the production version of the continental uh lincoln is no longer using the term ecoboost so ecoboost is a term even though you know, Lincoln's have the same engines for the most part that are in Ford brand vehicles. Um, they, they're trying to separate the Lincoln brand a little bit more uh, from Ford. And so they're no longer using the EcoBoost branding on uh, on their on their vehicles, even though, you know, again, as I said, you know, this is it the comes same from the same factory. It's the same. It's the same <laughs> engine that you'll find in the uh, the Fusion. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the MKZ, you know, under the skin is largely the same as a fusion you know it's the same platform uh same same dimensions same wheelbase uh you know obviously it looks completely unique it you know it doesn't share any sheet metal uh with the ford um and um none you know none of the interior parts are that are common uh aside from the you know the audio system head unit so you know it's it's got a completely distinct look it doesn't really drive a whole lot different from a fusion which you know there's nothing wrong with that because fusion's an excellent car uh in terms of its driving dynamics um, but isn't that also the problem that the fusion is an excellent car in terms of its driving dynamics and the well and exactly drives just like the fusion yeah you know um and in fact you know when when they launched the current generation fusion and mkz uh, in what uh, 20 as 2013 models in uh, late 2012 um they they don't you know they the MKZ had a number of features that were unique to the MKZ that you could not get on Fusion uh for example the uh the the big panoramic uh moonroof or sunroof you know with the, that w- that could retract um and I'll get back to that in, in a moment things like LED headlamps and uh they um, continuously variable dampers, things like that. Um, but as it turns out, you know, because they don't sell Lincolns in Europe uh, or or other 
most other parts of the world, um, the version of the fusion that they sell in other parts of the world, the, the Mondeo, um, is available with most of the features that make the MKZ unique, uh, aside from the styling, obviously. Uh, and so right, isn't that their um, vin- Vignali trim or whatever it is? Yeah, even <laughs> even on the titaniums, I mean, you could get a lot of these a lot of these features like the LED headlamps and and this retractable glass roof um, on even on the titanium models uh, in Europe. So, you know, everything that was that distinguishes an MKZ from a fusion here was available on a Mondeo in Europe. So, you know, I mean, obviously it's a different market. You know, you're, you're not going to. You know, buyers aren't going to go to Europe to buy a, a Mondeo uh, and bring it back over here unless, of course, they're looking for a wagon, which, you know, I've always thought that, you know, they should offer a, a fusion wagon here because the Mondeo wagon's an awesome looking car. But that's a that's a whole other diversion. We don't need well, to go down it, that but, path. But, but yes and no, like it, it gets a it would give I, I think about bringing that over as just the Lincoln. It would give them something completely the wagon? unique in the marketplace. Yeah. Um you know they they would they would have something unique uh it's a good car you know it it, it drives on par with some of the high end or higher end european you know some of the premium european brands um it's been a while since i've been in one but still they they do drive pretty well mm-hmm. um and it gets over that problem that the um the sedans on that platform have which uh they're just not that spacious inside you know, the, the wagon is actually useful, but I mean, that's not where the money is right now. Obviously the money is in well, crossovers. you know, I mean, uh, Honda tried that with, uh, with the Acura, uh, the previous generation TSX, they brought over, um, the Accord wagon, you know, cause the TSX was, was that they, what they, the car they sold here is the TSX was the European Accord wagon or was the European Accord. And they offered it as a wagon version and, you know, they brought that over here um you know at the at the behest of all the automotive journalists that like to drive station wagons and, and we bought some and and <laughs> some we bought some i mean i know <laughs> you know um you know one of my former co-workers um uh her, her uh marcia pond who's uh the wife of uh of dan pond of car and driver she drove an, a tsx wagon you know lovely car um you know and the puns and, you know, a, a few other, a handful of other uh, automotive journalists bought those things and, and pretty much nobody else, uh, which is why there is no wagon version of the TLX. Now that, you know, when they replaced the TSX with the TLX, they did not bring along a new, a new wagon to go with it. Uh, you know, for, for some insane reason, Americans just have this absolute aversion to station wagons. And I just, don't understand it. You know, I mean, last or a couple of weeks ago, I was driving the, the Kia Optima hybrid, you know, which again, you know, like the fusion and, you know, many other midsize modern midsize sedans is, you know, it's a lovely car, but in Europe, you can buy that, buy the Optima as a wagon and it's, it's a fabulous looking car. And, yeah. you know, it, it has all the same, you know, wonderful qualities of the sedan, but with that whole extra, you know, um, cargo room in the back, you know, so that when you need to haul some bigger stuff, um, you know, you can just fold down those seats and you've got this spacious area in the back for, you know, for things that are bigger than an Ikea flat pack. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even if you don't fold the seats down, the, the thing is with the roof line of the modern sort of in this modern sedan idiom with that real stretched out roof line and small trunk lid, 
you know, you've got a trunk in, in, in the size class of the, you know, the MKZ. Uh, it's probably what? 15 cubic feet yeah it's it's about it's about it's a it's about that and you know and that brings me you can't get at it that that brings me to one of the other complaints one of the the main complaints i have about this mkz uh you know since they launched the current generation mkz in 2013 one of the the main um distinguishing features it's had is this um retractable glass roof which um you know for those familiar with the um the the Porsche 911 Targas of the the latter half of the 90s and early 2000s um, that was made uh, by a company called Webasto. You know those Targas, rather than having a removable roof panel like the original 911 Targas, you know had this sliding glass roof panel that would go out and over the the back of the the rear glass, um, and you know it the uh, the the system on the MKZ is made by the same company, the same supplier, and it's, it's a very similar design. And the, you know, while, you know, it gives you this nice big uh, opening in the, in the roof for nice sunny days. Um, it also means that you have some pretty massively wide uh, C pillars because they have to build in the rails for this huge chunk of glass to slide back over the back and when you do open it up, you know, because it's pretty heavily tinted, um, you, you know, it makes it actually makes it quite difficult to see out the back even more so because, you know, with that sloping rear glass, um, you know, you've got a fairly narrow, you know, vertically narrow uh, window to start with. And then when you have this this dark tinted piece of roof glass sliding over top of it, it makes it even harder to see out of. And, it, you know, the the wide pillars make visibility over your shoulders much more problematic than in the standard MKZ or in the fusion. Uh, so, you know, visibility is really not that great out of this thing with that. Uh, if you get that sliding roof. Well, and it's not even great um, in the fusion or, you know, without that roof either. That's, that's a car that went and Ford did this to their lineup. They did it to the Taurus too. They, they, took these these sedans they're bread and butter sedans and they made them less useful less you you know they took utility away uh at the altar of styling which i get you know they certainly well i mean uh, you know they are they are by no means the only i mean almost everyone has gone down this path uh in the sedan you know everybody's gone towards this coupe like profile for their sedans you know nobody's nobody does a a, th- a real three box sedan anymore, except for maybe, um, you know, Honda with the Accord and uh, Volkswagen with the Passat, you know, most other sedans in that segment have this sort of this uh, sloping coupe like proof profile. Now, you know, that, that's, you know, inspired by the original Mercedes CLS. And I mean, I, I get it, but you know, the, the, the Accord and the Passat still like they, they do one thing very well and that's, you know, they're, they're easy to drive and operate. They don't, you know, they don't have huge blind spots. Uh, they have, you know, large trunks and cargo areas that are easy to get to. Like those are the practical considerations. You got to live with that car every day. I remember being so in love with the original fusion just because it was, uh, you know, such a, uh, I guess a basically good design. Um, it had obviously had some cost cutting issues just because of the time that it came out and, and that kind of stuff. But it was, it was a really solid, uh, three box mainstream 
sedan that and, wasn't you know, it's, it's still it's still a handsome looking car even now. I mean, my my younger kid drives one, drives a 2008 Fusion and it's you know, it's still a good, solid car um, drives well. You know, it always had good, uh, good driving dynamics. And, you know, the, the current generation one is even better. And, you know, I, I would say, you know, the visibility out of the Fusion is, you know, while it's probably not as good as that first generation Fusion, it's it's definitely better than the MKZ uh, with the with the sliding roof. So what else about the MKZ, though? Um, does Do you feel that that nose, the Continental nose, works successfully on that? Or does it, because to me, it looks like two different cars sort of coming and going. Yeah, you know, uh, you know, call me crazy, but, you know, I, I was not one of the people that, you know, was totally turned off by the, the bow wave grill, the split wing grill uh, design, you know, which was inspired by the, the 1930s era Lincoln Zephyr. Um, yeah, I just didn't, I didn't think, I thought the, the I, whole, I thought, like, I the, thought the execution the lights was too, too, too narrow. Um, yeah, I guess, you know, maybe the, the, the light, you know, the, the light clusters were maybe a little on the small side, uh, on that, but, you know, I think it, it worked with the rest of the design of that 2013, uh, MKZ, you know, I think it, it was, it was well integrated into that shape, um, you know, yeah, and the, you well, know, the, it the definitely funny, made the car stand I, I, I de- out. Yeah, I mean, and I definitely agree that it it does now look kind of like two different cars. I mean, whenever whenever I see one coming, you know, I immediately think, oh, there's a new Continental. Um, you know, and uh, in fact, I've actually seen very few new Continentals on the road, surprisingly enough. Um, but uh, you know, so when I see one coming, I, I immediately think it's the Continental. You know, and then as soon as, as soon as it gets, you know, past the straight on view, I realize, oh, OK, it's actually an MKZ. Um, you know, and it uh, I guess it doesn't it it uh, it doesn't really it doesn't totally fit with the rest of the car. It doesn't look it looks fine. Yeah, you know, it looks but it, good, but, but it, it's yeah. it's just it, it doesn't seem to be uh, congruous with the rest of the shape of that car. You know, because that, you know, the, the rest of the MKZ has got some you know, fairly sharp lines and creases, you know, which I think, you know, it's a handsome looking car. Um, and you know, it, it drives well. Uh, the one I've got has, has all wheel drive in addition to the, the 240 horsepower, uh, two liter, uh, turbo. Um, so, you know, it's, they do now offer a version with, um, a twin turbo, um, three liter V six, uh, with, uh, was it, uh, the, do they have the three liter in the MKZ or is that only is in the, the three liter or is the 2.7? Uh, e- no, actually way. it's a, it's the three liter. It's the three liter because they, they put the three liter in there to distinguish it from the fusion sport. Cause the fusion sport is available with the two seven and only the Lincoln gets the three liter version. Um, you know, and that's, you know, close to 400 horsepower. I was going to say either way, like that yeah. 2.7 is no slouch. Oh no, it's a it's, punchy engine. Yeah. I mean the, it, it's codenamed the nano V six, you know, and it's, it's a fabulous engine in every application they've put it in, you know, from the, um, the, the fusion and the edge to the, the F one fifty. you know, you, you know, you would think a 2.7 liter engine in F one fifty would be crazy, but it actually works really well in there because, you know, like the other, the turbo direct injected engines, it's got lots of low end torque, but yeah, the, the two liter, you know, this is an updated version of the two liter, um, you know, the original two liter, um, 
had a uh, different cylinder head. So they, they revised the cylinder head um, and put a twin scroll turbocharger on this. So it's actually got a little, it's a little bit, a little more responsive than the original version, yeah, a little bit, a little bit less turbo lag, same twin, power. Twin scroll, right. But twin scroll is one of those, um, one of those terms that gets thrown around. And, and uh, I, I feel like people don't understand what it, what it means. So twin scroll, basically they, they, it separates the exhaust pulses so that there's a steady stream of pulses going to the turbo. There's sort of two different paths. Right. right. Like, so with a, with a single scroll turbo, uh, basically you, you have one tube, you know, the, on the, the turbine side of the turbocharger, you know, you have one inlet that comes around and it curls around the, the turbine wheel. And on so the, you, on the exhaust side, or on the, the, on the exhaust the side. side. And so you have all, all of the exhaust streams coming together before the turbo and coming in, and uh, what happens is um, the because of, especially on a four cylinder engine, you know, with the with the timing of the pulses, um, you actually get some feedback um, from some of the, from a couple of the cylinders put that push that pushes the exhaust back into back towards the cylinders. Um, and so you end up with basically what you end up with is less pressure at the, the turbine wheel, and that can lead to some turbo lag. So what they do with a, a twin scroll turbo uh, turbocharger is they actually keep um, two separate paths uh, coming into the, the turbine wheel uh, inlet. Uh, so two of the cylinders feed one path, the other two feed the other path, and you you get more separation of those exhaust pulses uh, and it keeps the turbo spinning up faster, uh, makes it more responsive. So you get less lag um, and it just, you know, it's it's not a, a huge difference, but it's it's a noticeable difference. Yeah, well, and it's that's the thing with turbos, too. Like the peak number is less when you're looking at a turbo sort of dyno plot, you want to see what's under the peak. You know, how does it how does it look under the peak? And now all these engines, they look like a plateau. It just it goes up at like twelve hundred RPM. It just sits there to like four thousand. Yeah, well, that's know, like that's the beauty work. with the you know with the the direct injected turbos because um, you know the the direct injection you know by spraying the fuel directly into the the cylinder. Uh, it gives a charge cooling effect. So what happens is, you know, when you, you know, when the turbocharger compresses the air, you know, it's a, it's a you know, classic uh, gas principle. When you compress a gas, it increases the, the temperature. And uh, so what happens is when you, um, with a, a, an older style port injected engine, um, you couldn't have, you, you'd have, you'd end up having to use uh, lower compression ratios or less boost because when you sprayed the fuel into the intake ports with this hot compressed air, you had a higher risk of knock and, and pre-ignition with uh, a direct injected engine. Uh, you know, you you only have the hot air coming into the cylinder and then getting compressed. Uh, and then you spray in the fuel. And uh, so what, um, as you spray the fuel into this compressed charge, uh, as the fuel evaporates, it actually absorbs some of the thermal energy from that hot air. And so it, it, it cools everything down. So you have less, less chance of knocking. And so that lets you use a higher compression ratio. And as a result, you get these, you know, much better torque curves, much flatter torque curves than you would with a, an older style turbo. Yeah. And it, it really does pay off. You know, the, the last few turbocharged cars I've driven have been much less laggy. Um, and, you know, even 
the, the port injected stuff, it got pretty good when they started using smaller turbos and, and uh, you know, the old, old school turbos were just like these giant like Garrett T3s that were on the, you know, seven and a half to one compression engine. <laughs> it was just like you'd wait, you'd wait, you'd wait. And then it was like, pow. <laughs> well, you know, the, you probably remember the, uh, you know, the 1980s when they first started trying to downsize engines, you know, to try and improve fuel economy and using turbochargers in combination with carburetors. You know, you had carbureted turbocharged engines and it was just a, yeah. that was just a complete disaster. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it seems like they've worked out a lot of the kinks in that EcoBoost engine in the, uh, I'm sorry, the GTDI, because yeah. it sounds much more like a, a European competitor. At that point, um, yeah, the, I mean, the, the one downside you still have with some um, GTDI engines uh, like this one is, uh, especially on a cold start, you do get some more particulate emissions, which, you know, if you take a look at most uh, recent Ford and Lincoln vehicles with um, with EcoBoost engines in them, uh, if you take a look around the exhaust pipes, you'll notice a lot of black residue around the exhaust pipes um, hmm. and around the, the bodywork, especially, you know, on lighter colored cars, you know, white and silver um, Ford vehicles with EcoBoost. You'll see there there tends to be a lot of black residue on the, the bodywork, you know, on the bumper right around the exhaust tips. Um, and so that's one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons why. Uh, uh, the updated a lot of the updated 2018 models like the uh, the Mustang and the F-150, um, their, their new generation EcoBoost engines, they're actually going to a dual injection system with uh, both port and direct injection. Um, and then they can use uh, they, they and that gives them better. They can get better overall drivability using the combination of the two and also avoid some of the cold start particulate emissions that they have with uh, with a lot of DI engines. Hmm. I didn't know they had more more particulates on cold start. I mean, I guess it it stands to reason. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the the up for uh, was it, I think from uh, 2018, uh, they're starting to phase in tier three emission standards and uh, the tier three emission standards have uh, tighter particulate uh, requirements. And so, um you know, automakers are looking at two different solutions that one is this dual injection system, uh, which Ford is using. And the other approach uh, is to, to lobby the president. Okay, okay. Well, that would be, that would be approach number three. Um, Sorry. Pri prior, <laughs> prior to the current administration taking office, uh, the other, the other technical approach uh, was to, <laughs> is to use uh, uh, um, a particulate filter like they use on diesels. And That's what I was going to actually ask. Is like, do you think that they're going to use a particulate trap? Yeah, uh, actually, some uh, some manufacturers are doing that because uh, European uh, emission standards for, for gas engines are also getting tighter on the particulate standards. So uh, Mercedes, for example, is using particulate uh, filters um, on some of their gas engines starting in, starting this year. Um, and so it's. Most of the manufacturers are going one of these two approaches, uh, either using a particulate trap like they do on diesels or the dual injection system. So then at a certain point, it has to inject fuel in there and, and uh, go into regen like the diesels do to burn it off at a right. safe moment and that kind of stuff. That, that's that's interesting. That's another wrinkle. Yeah. <laughs> um, huh. Well, did you want to talk about anything else you're driving or any other points about the uh, the MKZ or do we should we? No, I mean, just, you know, that, you know, overall, it's, you know, it, it's a it's a very good car. You know, it's solid. Um, 
and you know got a very nicely executed interior um you know sync three you know i think you know still a huge improvement over over prior editions of uh of the system um and uh yeah it's got support for android auto and and apple carplay so yeah i mean that's that's becoming more and more common i wish my phone actually supported apple i mean uh android auto um that's like sort of the one thing it doesn't do which i'm still kind of annoyed by uh but i'm seeing more and more cars when i pair it they say oh do you want to use android auto with this and you know i try i'm like yes i would and then i'm like yeah your phone's sad trombone yeah um so uh, the the one um the one downside on sync three if you choose to use android auto or apple carplay it does disable uh app link support um so you can't you have to choose between one or the other so with app link you do get um so you get to control some of the apps uh directly through the um through the sync interface uh and using um voice controls as well as the touch controls uh so certain apps uh like glimpse uh you know i don't know if you use glimpse at all but it's i find it a very handy app sometimes uh if i'm running late and i want to let my wife know you know where i am when i'm going to be home you know i can send her a glimpse and you know she'll get a She'll get pinged on her phone and she can see on the map where I am um, and what time, you know, what my ETA is going to be. Um, and that doesn't work uh, through uh, Android Auto. Um, but so if I wanted to use that, I'd have to turn off uh, Android Auto and use the app link. Yeah. And that's uh, I have noticed that I, I don't use Glimpse, but, you know, even when I use something like um, that has you know, Spotify support or Stitcher support, um, I'll if it's a car that has AppLink in it like that, I'll I'll be able to use the app on the you know the main head unit screen, and it'll just display like a Ford logo on my phone, which I you know I, I actually like that better instead of having to fiddle with the phone and right. Um, but you know. b- both of those apps are also supported through Android Auto, so um, mm-hmm. you can use them that way. You you can use them either way. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, it, does it have Wi-Fi? Too, like uh, that, it does have Wi-Fi, and this one has uh, Sync Connect, so it's got their their telematics system. It's got a a four G LTE uh, radio built into the car and a Wi-Fi hotspot. So if you're taking a road trip and you, know, you get the kids sitting in the back, or or your yeah. partner um, you know wants to use the in car connection instead of their their phone connect their phone data link connection, uh, you can do that. See, I was kind of initially a skeptic, and I think if I were to actually purchase a car uh, with Wi-Fi capability, I don't know that I'd want just I mean, because it's just another bill, um, but it's it's not necessarily that expensive in the family car. It kind of makes some sense because there's been times where I've actually you know had to share, you know, you know, tether my phone to the other devices that can do Wi-Fi that, you know, can't we don't have any other you know, like we have an iPad that does Wi-Fi only. Um, and the amount of peace that that keeps when I tether it to my phone, oh, to yeah. suck up my data connection on a trip is, is, you know, so it's worthwhile. It may be worth Absolutely. It. I mean, you can know, have the kids, you know, want to watch some, some Netflix or some YouTube or, you know, just stream their own music, uh, in the backseat. You know, if they don't, you know, if they don't have a phone with a data plan of their own and they're using a, uh, an iPod touch or, or, uh, an iPad or, or, you know, even just an older, um, phone that that you don't have activated on a on an account, um, you know they can just connect to the Wi-Fi and stream that way using the the car's data connection. Yeah, so all that stuff is. I know we bat, we we complain about tech sometimes, but I think that that's a a good one to have is is the Wi-Fi. 
Um, Absolutely. I could have so. used that when my kids were little. Yeah. Instead, it was uh, endless courses of wheels on the bus. And, um, <laughs> you know, see how many license plates from different states you can find, right? Yeah. That, that one doesn't work. No, not anymore. <laughs> I, I try. <laughs> uh, all right. What about right, you? So, what are you driving? Well, I finished up a week with the um, the Challenger GT. I had it for a week. Uh, I think I had just gotten it the day we did the last podcast. And, you know, I... I was thinking as I drove it, like that is that is a car that I would actually spend my own cash on, not because I'm some sort of old school muscle car purist, because there's certainly some of that to that car. Uh, but I, I do like the way it looks. I really like the way it drives. It's quiet. It's, you know, comfortable and relaxed. And it's roomy enough for most of it's definitely it's more than roomy enough for most of the way i use it uh but it's also it's not as tight as a mustang or a camaro so it's it's useful if you want to have a life as well um and it just you know it's it's a good big coupe it was great in the the crappy weather uh i don't think that a rear wheel drive one would be really any worse but the all-wheel drive certainly offers a lot of confidence um, and you know, the V six has plenty of power, uh, with the eight speed automatic, you know, it's just, it's a, it's an overall, it's a nice car and it was equipped. Well, it was about $38,000 because it had the, the GT interior pack, which includes, uh, it's basically SRT seats. Um, but you know, I, I could spend a lot of miles in that car and, and be, uh, pretty satisfied. It, it just drove really well. It was very well equipped for the, for the money, I think, um, you know, I really, that's another, every now and then I get one of those cars that I just, I can't really complain about. Uh, you know, the worst I can say about it is that it's a little, little heavy. So it's a little bit uh, thirsty, um, depending on what you're doing with it. But on the highway, it gets like 24 something miles to the gallon. So it's, it's not terrible. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the Panastar V6 is a great engine, um, you know, uh, just shy of 300 horsepower in that application. I think it's what about 290. No, I think it's uh 305. Oh, is it 305 in that one? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. It varies, you know, somewhere between 290 and 305, uh, depending the on which torque vehicle doesn't it's generally in. move. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the torque generally stays about the same, but uh, yeah, it's a very good engine. Yeah. But you know, like, like you said, you know, one of the, one of the nice things about the challenger, you know, I mean, yes, it's, it's bigger and, and heavier than a Camaro or a Mustang, but you know, if you've got, Kids that, you know, younger kids that are big enough that they're not, you know, that you don't have to strap them into a booster seat, um, but, you know, small enough, you know, that they, you know, that they can get in there on their own. You know, it's it's still a reasonably practical car, uh, certainly yeah. much more so than a, than a Camaro or a Mustang. Um, you know, and, they're, you know, I think in the back seat there, they're not going to feel uh, as claustrophobic as they would in the other cars. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like the back seat is not it's not that big. It's it's several inches shorter than a than a charger. And you definitely feel that. Right. But it's, you know, still compared compared to the Mustang and Camaro, it's vastly more useful. Yes. And interior materials and uh, just overall fit and finish. I I continue to think is is very good since Chrysler went through that, you know, that refresh I want to say it was what back in 2000, 2010 or 11. Yeah. It's, I think it's 2011 or something like it was a big upgrade. Yeah. Um, you know, af after their bankruptcy, you know, they basically revamped the entire lineup. Yeah. You know, even though, you know, most of the vehicles were carried over, they, they at least went through and put, 
new interiors on practically everything. And, yeah, and, so, and it still yeah, holds up well. Yeah, the, I was thinking about this. This is a 10 year old car, roughly. Um, Maybe. Definitely. You know, it was at in least development 10. 10 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, really it's solid to just drive. You know, it's it's certainly in terms of like measuring up to the rest of the competition. There are reasons why the other cars are better. But I think, you know, the fact that it's bigger and heavier than something like a Mustang or a Camaro actually works in its favor. It makes it different, uh, different enough that, you know, it's yes, it can chase them on performance with some of the V8 models. But those those cars are just they're in a they're in a different level at this point, you know, in terms of performance. Um, the the Challenger is going to have a hard time uh, keeping up with the, the Mustang or the Camaro, depending on how they're equipped. Uh, but it's it's still a good time. And it's it's so it's I, I like what it does. It, it definitely, you know, every trip happens in 1971 and that's OK. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they, they replaced well, that. Well, actually, you know, it, it's a hell of a lot more sophisticated car than a, a 1971 Challenger. I mean, you know, from the oh, yeah. uh, from the outside, it still looks a lot like a 71 Challenger. But, you know, it's it's a pretty sophisticated car, even, you know, even a decade old. You know, it's still a fairly modern architecture. Well, and they've kept up with it, too. That's been the impressive thing is that, uh, you know, Chrysler is making the most with what they've got. Um, you, you know, right now we're seeing a lot of the focus sort of shifted to you know developing something like the Julia, which to in a couple of weeks from what you were saying. Uh, so that'll be exciting. Um, but they've still had to fill in, you know, the, you know, the cars that they do have to sell while they're developing other stuff. Um, you know, I, I can't, I can't knock it. Uh, it's definitely, it's just definitely not the flexi loose fit <laughs> actual 71 challenger. It does a really good with job his, of, with four yeah. wheel drum brakes. Yeah. It does a really good job of being evocative. And that's, I think that's pretty much the best you could hope for is it gives you a lot of that flavor with sort of none of the uh, bad aftertaste. <laughs> that's true. Uh, but they, they replaced it, uh, with an Audi a four uh prestige s line with the 2.0 t holy crap what a fantastic car um that's that's probably the the top car i've driven in a long time i've i i am just so impressed with the a4 uh it does everything well it has very you know quiet competence which i think is where it gets knocked a bit is that it feels a little dispassionate or it can feel a little bit dispassionate um, but you know, it's, it's just, it's more than a pile of parts. It just, it has a, there's a life in there. There's a little bit of a sort of electricity that just hums through the car. It, it rides very well design. It's, it's, it's a design study really. Um, just the interior and exterior. Um, I, yeah, rather smitten with the Audi. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I had one of those back in November and uh, I, I was equally impressed with it. You know, one of, one of the things that I recall that I really liked about the, the interior, uh, you know, Audi, like its German competitors, you know, uses um, a central control knob. You know, they, they've got their MMI system that they call. Um, but one, one of the interesting things that they did was the, the shape of the, the shifter uh, you know, it's got this kind of flat surface on the top of it, you know, uh, because, you know, it's not really 
meant to be shifted a whole lot, except for, you know, going from park to reverse or drive. Um, you know, so when you're in drive, you know, it's got this flat surface and it's kind of, kind of overhangs the, uh, the MMI controller a little bit um, and basically provides a support for your, you know, for the, the palm of your hand, you know, when you're controlling that. So you have really precise control, you know, it just, it's, it's really well thought out. I yeah. Think. I didn't even think I, I can definitely agree that that's exactly what I did with it. And I didn't even think about that sort of attention to detail uh, that really permeates the car. Uh, it's just either the, the controls I'm impressed because it has a lot of tech in it and I've wound up using the tech, uh, even the, the, the handwriting recognition. I found that the easiest way to put an address into the nav. And in the past, like, I've, I've kind of scoffed at that. Just been like, yeah, yeah, it's a gimmick. It's a parlor trick. It worked really well here. Um, and the, the updates they've made to the MMI system. So it has a couple of there's, I think there's four hard buttons, um, for getting through the bigger sections. So you can select like nav or radio or, um, radio media and, you know, the telephone and a couple of other things, but they've added enough hard buttons to the MMI control system to make it really useful, really quick. Yeah. You know, I've, I've used the, the handwriting recognition on, you know, the Audis, BMWs and Mercedes and, you know, all of them, you know, do a reasonably good job of, of recognizing the characters. Um, but I, I've have found them to be significantly slower than just twisting the knob, um, you know, to, to select uh, letters and numbers. Uh, I find, I find just using the knob directly to be a, a faster interface. And, you know, in cases like the, like the Audi where it does have Android auto support, um, you know, just using um, Google voice control, uh, I find to be the, the, superior uh interface for all of that all right so what kind of fancy android phone do you have that you can use android auto with all this stuff uh just a nexus 6p okay so i've got a you know so i've got a droid mini so it's an xt 1030 okay yeah that's that's an older right. one um <laughs> does not do it yeah no you you, you gotta have i think are you even on android 5 with that one uh yes or are you still on no it's on five it's not android 4. i don't think it's android 4 um Okay, but I like I also didn't want a ginormous phone. That was part of the reason why I got the Droid Mini. So, right, um, yeah. I mean, uh, I have a six P, and you know, it um, it works great. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, you know, as a Nexus, it's got it, it's always got support for all the latest features in Android. Uh, but even before that, you know, I had a a Moto X, and uh, it has Android Auto support as well. So yeah, I almost went with the Moto X. It was like twice the price, and I'm cheap, so. <laughs> I was like, I know I'm just going to drop it. One of these days is going to drop it in a urinal or something. And it's going to be the end of it. So why, why spend too much? Um, yeah, I, I I think what it was with the handwriting recognition was when you select nav, it defaults to like entering an address. So you just hit nav and you start writing on the, the top of that control knob and you can just enter your address real quick. There's just very yeah. little thinking uh, to do with that. So I was impressed. And then I was more impressed with just, just how well it drove. It's just, it has that real solid blend of ride and handling. And it's, again, it's one of those things. It's very quiet. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely a car that accommodates, you know, all of your life. And I guess the one thing I would knock about it is, um, it's, a it, it's, it could be a little larger, but then you go, well, there's the a six. <laughs> so, right. um, 
Yeah, I I can't really find anything to fault about the A4. I'm I'm really uh, really impressed with it. Yeah, no, it's 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 a wonderful car, and you know, like you say, it's got that that classic German, you know, button down, you know, perfectly stable, you know, at any speed, especially at higher speeds. Uh, you know, yeah, it it, it it feel you know it feels like it was bred for. You know, cruising down the autobahn at you know 140, 150 miles an hour. It sure was. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because you look down and you're like, "Holy crap, I'm going that fast!" It it will creep up on you if you're not careful. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, if if we're gonna put one up on the sort of the our own personal leaderboard, uh, yeah, that, that's that's up there this year. That one's gonna be hard to beat, I think. Uh, we should move on to topics. Sure. Because we've we've spent a long time talking about the garage, which has been fun. <laughs> um, but uh, there's been a few things going on lately. And one of the companies we talked about not too long ago was Mobileye. Uh, they just got bought by Intel. Yeah. Um, interesting deal there. Um, you know, Mo- Mobileye over the last year, they've, um, you know, well, first of all, you know, Mobileye, for those that aren't familiar with the company, um, they are definitely the industry leader and vision systems for driver assist. So, you know, most of the cars out there that have uh, lane keeping, lane departure systems um, are, you know, are using Mobileye uh, vision systems to actually detect the road in front of the vehicle and, you know, look for those lane markers and let you know when you're drifting out of the lane. Uh, and they supply, I don't know, something like 19 different automakers uh, with their with their parts. And, you know, the vast majority of the stuff that's out on the road today with lane keeping systems are using mobilized technology. Um, you know, and then, you know, the probably the other two main suppliers of that technology right now are Hitachi who supply the, the stereo vision system that's used by uh, Subaru for their eyesight system and auto leave uh, who also do a stereo vision system that they sell to uh, uh, Mercedes and I think a couple of other automakers, but um, mobile eye uh, over, over the past year, you know, they've gotten heavily involved with um, with Intel on a couple of different projects so they did a they have they had a partnership uh that was announced last year early last year with intel and bmw uh so bmw for their autonomous uh driving systems so uh that one uh bmw is actually developing the the control software for that one and they're working using intel processors and uh mobilize uh vision system and um uh, their uh, vision vision processing uh, chip and software. And then the other one uh, is with Delphi, who are also partnering with Intel and Mobileye. And what's what's interesting with, with Mobileye is Mobileye doesn't actually make the camera sensors that are used for these systems. Um, you know, they get camera sensors from other suppliers like Sony and, and other manufacturers. Um, but they design uh, their own custom um processing chip and uh and they do the uh, software algorithms that do the image recognition and so their their line of of chips are you know called the iq uh chips um and their current generation system is the iq3 so that's what you find on a lot of cars that have lane keeping today is the iq3 uh 2018 they're bringing out the iq4 and then uh, a couple years after that the iq5 and What's what's interesting about that chip, uh, the ones they have today, they're made by a company 
uh, a chip maker called um, ST Microelectronics. So they Mobileye designs it and it's fabricated by ST. Um, and that chip is uh, very highly optimized for doing uh, a lot of AI type algorithms, artificial intelligence algorithms, and for doing the image processing and um, and also sensor fusion, which is going to be an important part of um, the um, uh, autonomous systems going forward. You know, because they've got to combine all these different sensor inputs from radar and lidar and cameras and ultrasonic sensors to create this coherent view of what's around the car uh, when it's driving and so the uh, what we're what we're seeing happen from a lot of the companies that are developing automated driving systems is this um, kind of electronic architecture where you've got basically two kinds of processors in there. You have these AI optimized processors that are doing they're controlling the what, what's referred to as the perception system. That's the sensing system, and then a more general purpose type you know CPU. Uh, you know, more like a traditional computer processor that does the the more deterministic control, you know, that actually, you know, figures out, okay, here's the path I want to take and, you know, actually controls the actuators in the car, you know, the brakes and the steering and the acceleration to make it, make it stop and go and steer. Um, and so that's what um, these partnerships with BMW and, and uh, Delphi uh, Mobileye has the, the perception part of it, the perception processor and Intel has the, the, the conventional CPU, the general purpose CPU, and they're combining those into these uh, electronic control units, the, the brain that drives these vehicles. And then the other big company that's involved in a lot of this stuff now is NVIDIA. Uh, you're probably more familiar right. with for, you know, producing um, graphics cards for computers. <clears throat> um, but, you know, NVIDIA has got a, you know, they've got their own uh, autonomous driving system uh, that they call the Drive PX platform. And it uses a similar kind of architecture. They use they use one of their big graphics processors as the perception engine and then uh, an arm based, you know, um, more like a, a, a smartphone processor as a, a system on a chip to do the controls uh, and what was just announced. So this week we've had two big announcements. We've had Intel announcing a few days ago that um, they're buying Mobileye for $15 billion. Um, so they'll be producing future Mobileye chips and, you know, they'll, they'll be more closely partnered together on a variety of autonomous driving systems. And then um, NVIDIA uh, and Bosch announced today that um, Bosch is going to be producing autonomous control units based on NVIDIA's newest processor, which is called Xavier, which actually um, combines uh, their latest generation graphics processor, their GPU, and a, an ARM system on a chip in a single package, in a single, in a single uh, die. Uh, so you've got just one big chip that does all of this stuff uh, together. And that's going to help them get lower power. You know, NVIDIA claims that this thing is down to uh, just 10 watts of power, which is remarkably low considering the kind of workload these, these, these things are going to have. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I was going to say that that's a single point of failure, but I guess uh, the control unit itself is really the single point of failure. So it doesn't really matter about the chip um, all that much. And I think having it all, like you said, on a single die is probably actually going to make it a lot 
quicker than having two chips. You got to put them together on a circuit board. Um, yeah, I think, you know, and what we'll probably see, you know, on some of the production systems, um, you know, is, you know, we'll probably actually see systems that have um, either two of these chips, you know, running in parallel, um, you know, so that they can cross check against each other or uh, more likely, you know, what we'll have is, you know, you'll have one of these <coughs> NVIDIA Xavier processors in the Bosch control unit um, or the, the Intel Mobileye stuff. Um, you know, as the, your primary computer that drives all this stuff. And then a second different, you know, something with different chips in it. Uh, that's a secondary system that is getting the same, the same sensor inputs um, and running, you know, perhaps a slightly different version or different implementation of the software, um, you know, with the same sensor inputs that'll be used to cross check the, the primary one. And, um, you know, make sure that it, it comes to the same kind of decision points. Yeah. I mean, it's so like, who do you think is going to win in this? Intel and Mobileye certainly have uh, obvious, uh, I don't like the word, but they, they have an obvious um, synergy and you know, looking at it from a more uh, overall business perspective, I think it's actually Intel looking around for a survival strategy. Um you know, and NVIDIA is big, like you said. Uh, Qualcomm is a pretty big player as well. Um, yeah, they're they're the other big player in this stuff. So, and, um, and Intel, um, Intel's getting its ass kicked in a lot of other ways. You know, they may still be the leading processor manufacturer for desktops and laptops. Um, like I'm, I'm recording this right now in a Core i7 machine, uh, but they don't they don't do well in, you know, markets or in, in segments that have really been taken over by arm processors. So that's tablets and smartphones and, uh, with everything shifting mobile, they're, they're, I feel like they're, they're looking around going, well, what, what do we do next? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in, Intel's been struggling the last few years, you know, as, as you said, they, you know, they're still the dominant player, you know, in desktop and laptop machines and, and also in, in servers, but even that's changing. Um, you know, and they, you know, they tried, you know, a few years ago, they tried to build, um, mobile processors based on their x86 architecture, you know, which is the, you know, the, the descendant of the original IBM PC chip, uh, the 8086, uh, you know, yeah, you know, and it, you know, it failed, you know, their, their, their mobile strategy failed miserably. Uh, basically nobody, you know, almost nobody wanted to use their chips. Um, they're not as power efficient as the, uh, the arm chips. Uh, you know, and you know, there's, you know, there's even rumors that, um, uh, you know, that a, a lot of, you know, more traditional style PCs are going to shift towards arm processors as those processors continue to get more and more powerful, you know they can they can emulate a lot of the the eighty eight the eighty x eighty six instructions, um, you know, so you can run you know Windows and and Mac software on those ARM chips. You know, everybody uses you know virtually everyone you know in the world uses ARM chips for mobile devices. You know, phone or phones, tablets, you know, everything else. Um, and so Intel's been looking for new markets. Uh, and, you know, so that's why they've been looking at the automotive space. You know, they've been they've been pushing a, a new uh, chip design that they have that's you know, it's based on the x86 architecture, um, but it, it combines features of their server chips and their 
um, their their mobile, you know, their laptop chips uh, that are more power efficient. Uh, you know, and the idea is, you know, using the the server architecture. Um, you know, today, you know, a lot of cars today have as many as you know seventy to a hundred uh, individual electronic control units, individual computers, you know, driving various aspects of the car. Um, and that, you know, that adds a lot of weight and a lot of complexity. And so, you know, everybody's looking at how can we start to consolidate this down and get it down to fewer ECUs. And so what Intel has been pitching is, you know, using their chips to, um, do virtualization of all these discrete ECUs, you know, so they've got that capability with their chips and that, and so that's what they're, they're doing, you know, with these uh, systems for autonomous vehicles is they're, you know, they're going to do the work of multiple discrete ECUs on a single chip uh, going yeah, forward. That's there's a lot of that going on across the the Internet with data infrastructure, too. So it's not that it's necessarily a bad idea either. Virtualization is we, we run a lot of servers at, at uh, my my company, uh, you know, with with sort of virtual instances of. Um, machines rather than actually like going out and buying another yet another server, you know, so it's, it, it has, has legs, um, you know, and I, I think that there was also talk about when, the, when the deal was announced, um, one of the guys from Gartner, uh, his name's Mike Ramsey. He, yeah, I know Mike, he's yeah, a friend of so, mine. Um, he was saying that they're Intel's paying a big premium uh, and they're, they're playing catch up as well. So basically they're costing themselves money and they're behind the eight ball. It, that may be true, but I, I think it's kind of probably worth it. You know, they could have blown way more money trying to launch an all new competitor uh, just to have it fail, uh, you know, regardless of it, you know, it could have even been superior, uh, but you're back to sort of beta versus VHS, you know, the superior tech doesn't always win. So I, I think, it's a pretty safe bet. And if you're Intel, you're going, where's our next, where's our next real stream of business coming from? And, and there's, you know, there's a lot of chips that get put into cars. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, you know, in terms of absolute volumes, it's, you know, it's certainly less than uh, mobile devices. You know, I mean, you, know, you sell a, a billion smartphones a year, you know, versus, uh, you know, 110, you know, hundred to 110 million cars a year. But, um, in terms of the power of what's used in the cars, uh, increasingly going forward and, and the, the value, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot of revenue potential if they can get a significant chunk of the, the automotive market. Yeah. What I was going to say too, uh, certainly the, the cost of the chips for the automotive applications are going to be higher than the cost of the chips for the mobile applications when you're selling a phone for $600 versus a car for 25,000. So, um, right. Yeah, that's an interesting development. Who do you think is going to win, though? Do you think it's going to be, uh, you know, NVIDIA or Intel? Uh, or? I, I don't know that there's going to be, you know, a single winner. You know, I think, that, you it's know, probably, I think it's, it's big good. enough. It's a big enough space that there's there's room for multiple winners in there. You know, I think, you know, NVIDIA is certainly going to grab a big chunk of the market. Um, I think, you know, Intel and, and Mobileye are going to grab a big chunk of the market, both through BMW and through uh, Delphi and, and I would suspect probably at least a couple, a couple of other companies. Um, and then, you know, Qualcomm, um, you know, having purchased, uh, NXP, uh, you know, NXP already has a big chunk of the, um, 
automotive uh, marketplace. You know, they supply a lot of chips for a lot of different applications in automotive. So between them and Qualcomm, uh, you know, I think that they will also grab uh, a decent chunk of the market as well. So I think there's there's plenty of space for for all of those players. Well, we'll keep an eye on that for sure. I mean, it, well, actually, they'll keep an eye on us. We're going to just get. We're gonna be <laughs> oh, worst yeah. Uh, so, yeah, there's a, a few other things going on, too. We can we can move on to these sights and sounds of Geneva. Um, which is kind of a lot of it's going to be repeated at New York from from what we were talking about before the show. Um, yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of the stuff that was introduced in Geneva, um, you know, we'll you know, a bunch of uh, world introductions there. And we'll see a lot of those same vehicles in a few weeks at the, uh, the New York show uh, making their North American introduction. There was a lot of very flashy stuff, um, it, which is typical yeah, of Geneva. Yeah, I was. You know, Gen- Geneva is a place where you find a lot of supercars introduced uh, because, it, you know, in, in Europe, you know, it, it's, it's well, it's Switzerland, so it's neutral ground. But, you know, because they don't really have a native auto industry there, um, you know, a lot of the, the companies go to Geneva, you know, to show off their their high end stuff. Huh. Oh, it was definitely there. I mean, there's a there's a the new uh, roof Yellowbird, which was I think it's I say a roof or RUF. Either way, uh Looks like a classic 911, completely not a classic 911. I, I was astounded yeah. by that. And, uh, you know, I kind of focused on the, the more plebeian stuff. <laughs> so I was interested. To see. You mean the stuff that you might actually someday possibly have a chance of being well, able to I mean, afford? Yeah, kind of. Um, everybody knows my thing for the Mitsubishi Galant, which is not actually a thing. But I was curious to see what they did with the Eclipse Cross. Uh you know, there's lots and lots of bitching about how the Eclipse name has been sullied and all this stuff. It's like, whatever. Um, oh, Mitsubishi sullied that name a long time yeah, ago. And uh, I'm, I'm just curious to just see how they go about continuing that that. Brand, because um, it's really it's it's sort of like an arm of of Nissan this point uh nissan renault so yeah i mean you know i mean this you know this new compact crossover that they're calling the eclipse cross um you know obviously was you know designed and developed you know before nissan stepped in and took a controlling interest uh, or rather the the renault nissan alliance Uh, i'm not sure exactly which company owns what stake but um you know they're they're part of the alliance with renault and nissan now um and uh you know, it's it's fine. I'm, you know, my main interest is just to see, uh, you know, how how new and different it is because they're desperately in need of mo- moving all their stuff off of that pro- project global platform that it's on that you know the Outlander and the Outlander Sport are based on, um, and then because everything they have, and it's another case of like doing the best of what you've got, but it's it's really old and it it feels really old. Yeah. Um, and you would think that if they're going to make a play to make a compact crossover, that's a, it's, it's a natural place to go. And uh, you're going to have to knock it out of the park because the competition is really tough. I'm not sure how well they actually knock it out of the park. It's, you know, it's, it's a Mitsubishi. It looks pretty good. And all their stuff to this day still looks pretty good, but it's kind of a thin veneer, especially when you're competing with Honda and Toyota and Ford and uh, you know, the Hyundai Kia, there's a lot of just a lot of heat. In that segment. Well, and especially in that small crossover segment, you know, there's a lot of strong competitors there. 
and you know more coming all the time you know nissan's about to launch the rogue sport um you know which is based on the the european market cash guy um and uh you know there's the honda hrv the chevy tracks um you know and 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 many the toyota chr um you know is going to be launching in the next few weeks so there's there's a lot of strong competitors there and it's it's going to be tough for for Mitsubishi to uh, gain any he- real headway there. Well, but, but we'll see. You know, none of those competitors can you get fully loaded for zero down, zero <laughs> APR, <laughs> and no payments for Trump. <laughs> whatever. Well, yeah. we don't we don't know that you'll be able yeah. to get an Eclipse Cross for that kind of pricing <laughs> either. But yet, not yet. Uh, anyway, I mean, <laughs> you know, give give it a couple of months after the launch before you get down there. Um, I don't. I don't want to, to belabor the point with Geneva, but I. I you know the weird stuff and the like. Pie in the sky. I saw the, the Lucid Air the Premier Edition stuff. Like, d- does anybody care anymore about these ridiculously expensive high end um, electric cars? I. I don't care anymore. Well, actually, um, Lucid just. Uh, they actually just announced their pricing today, and they're they're actually going to have um, their entry level version of the Air is going to start at uh, sixty thousand or fifty two five. Right, and it comes the, down after the tax uh, tax incentive. Yeah. <clears throat> right, so you know, but you know, basically sixty thousand, you know, which is a little bit less than you know the cheapest Model S, um, you know, and looks you know they haven't said what the the battery size is, but you know, based on a two hundred and forty mile range, you know, I think we can reasonably assume that that's a 60 kilowatt hour battery um you know so you know i, I think it's you know the air is a, a great looking car and you know if you can get one of, you know it'll be a while before you can get one of those more affordable ones you know as usual you know they'll start shipping just the high-end ones you know and then eventually um you know go go a little more uh, affordable with the um the smaller battery versions and the less equipped versions i have a uh, high-end electric car on Wii. I mean, wake me up when somebody makes one for you know twenty-five thousand dollars. It goes three hundred fifty miles and sees five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably probably still a few more years before we get to those. Probably about twenty nineteen or twenty okay. before we hit those. That's an attainable goal. That's not that far away. Um, okay. Yeah. I'll, no. I'll wait. That's that's fine. And then uh, the the Airbus Hotel design pop up. Um, Again, flying cars, man. Flying flying cars just will not die. <laughs> they, they they won't die, but they won't live either. No, no. I mean, up here we've got uh, Terrafugia or Terrafugia, however you say it, um, up in Massachusetts. I mean, that's been a story for again like ten years, and it's neat at least. And it's it's viable ish, but yeah, I. I <laughs> Heavily on the ish. I do not. I would love a flying car, but I I don't want to share the skies. I have to share the roads, and that's bad enough. <laughs> um. Yeah, and with drones, I think drones are actually going to kill the whole flying car thing anyway. Just like you can't have every Tom, Dick, and Harry flying their vehicle around when you've got drones for Amazon. Amazon's going to own that space. Uh. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um. Uh, but but of course the you know, the the re- the real news from Geneva was of course the Porsche Panamera wagon. I mean that's uh that is one thing that I actually uh I saw a tweet that was just some sort of expletive that said look at this thing and I retweeted it cuz I was like yes that is true. Um that that remains in a in a, a somewhat attainable aspiration. Um 
the the Panamera has finally gotten its ugly. Somewhat, going. very somewhat attainable. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a stretch. I need to make my first million first. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, it's. But it's a great looking car. It's everything that the Panamera we wish it had been <laughs> from the start. Uh, so they've they've found redemption. And then, of course, we get uh, the production versions of the Honda Civic Type R, the McLaren 720, um, the uh, Alpine A110, um, and, oh, the Subaru Crosstrek. Yeah, which we had a, a listener ask about, and so it's finally here, the Crosstrek based on the new Impreza, which I'm sure is, is fantastic. Uh, I've heard nothing but praise for the new Impreza. I'm interested to drive one soon. Uh, I'm sure they're getting up our way here in New England. Um, so... Yeah, the, the the old cross track didn't suck. The new one's going to be great. Um, that's that's sort of the long and short of it. It looks good. Yeah, and uh, Opal showed uh, the new Insignia, which will we will be getting as the uh, the next generation Buick Regal, um, and that one is going to be, I believe, is going to be shown at the New York Auto Show in a few weeks. So we'll we'll come back to that one uh, at that time once we've had a chance to take a look at it in person. Yeah. Rumor has it, though, that they will be selling it here as both a wagon and a five door hatchback. So the wagon, I think, again, would be really smart. It's interesting to see they're they're testing the waters with some of this stuff. Um, Nobody's made that stick yet. You know, nobody's nobody. uh, I mean, a hatchback Regal would be great. Um, yeah, well, you know, I mean, the, the current generation Regal hasn't been a huge seller here in North America for Buick. Um, you know, it got off to a reasonable start. And then once they introduced the Verano, you know, sales of the Regal really kind of tank. Well, yeah, they're, they're um, really close in size. I mean, the Regal is nice, but it's a little, yeah. it's a little tight. It's a little on the small end of the midsize uh, sedan segment. Although and, I, I, and I, I think the new one is, is bigger. Yeah. Uh, and I, th- I think, you know, it would make sense for, um, for Buick to do that, you know, to do the five door hatch and the, the wagon really to, to set it apart from the Malibu and, you know, to, to, you know, give it something unique and distinctive in that, you know, kind of slightly more premium segment, uh, you know, and and set it apart from the likes of the, the Lexus ES and, um, you know, the Acura uh, TLX and, you know, the infinity G 50. If at the very least it gives us enthusiasts something to say, like build it and I'll buy it, and then we won't, but we'll wait. Maybe they'll come around used, and so it'll be a new uh, cult classic they're creating. Uh, but also, like Buick's in this position where I think I don't even know that GM expects to to make a profit with Buick in the U.S., so they can kind of experiment a little bit with this. Uh, I I feel um, I'm. You know, I'm not privy to any boardroom discussion, but it almost seems like given that Buick is here mostly because it's in other markets. And so the shine of being in the U.S. market and, and by other actually, markets, we mean China. I mean, China. Yeah. Um, but that that's that's one of the reasons cited consistently for Buick surviving when Pontiac didn't. Um, it's like they can afford to play a little bit with Buick and see if if any of those are going to work without really any, any consequence, they don't expect to sell many of the Regals overall. So whatever tiny amount of volume, if their if their production is flexible enough to switch between the body styles without losing time and money, uh, 
you know, and I'm, I'm sure given GM's new focus on the bottom line and their discipline, they've they've worked some of this stuff out ahead of time. I hope. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, they're um, they're shifting production of the Regal back to Germany. Uh, you know, the, the current generation Regal was built in uh, uh, in Canada at the uh, Oshawa assembly plant. And so, you know, because the sales were relatively low, they're shifting it back to Germany to, to the Opel plant in Rüsselsheim alongside the insignia where they're already making those, uh, those other body styles anyway. You know, and basically, you know, the, the only difference between a Regal and an insignia is the, the badging insignia. and the, <laughs> yeah, literally the insignia <laughs> and, you know, the, the U S spec versions of the engines, um, so, you know, it, it makes, you know, it, it's not it's not going to cost them any more to do different body styles that they're already building anyway for the other markets. Is it going to cost them more to move production back to Rüsselsheim from Oshawa um, and then ship the cars across the ocean? Considering the volumes, I mean, you know, unless the volumes get, you know, grow substantially, uh, probably not, actually. You know, it'll probably cost them less to build them in, in Rüsselsheim alongside the insignia rather than have a second plant, you know, building 20,000 of these, you know, 25,000 of these just for North America. That's true. Actually, if you're building, you've got a whole plant making only that few cars, like that's, that's a loss. Yeah. This is global manufacturing is, it's just fascinating. (laughs) Uh, Uh, Unless of course you happen to be living in the white house right now, in which case, you know, it's a bad thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, speaking of that and some moves that are being <laughs> Must we made, speak of that? Uh, I guess I so. mean, I did, there's a couple of things, a couple of points. We, we want to talk about, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm just going to lead off. So the, the budget proposal uh, includes a $1 billion cut to the Coast Guard. Now, you might think, okay, Coast Guard, boats, water. Uh, what does that have to do with cars? Because it's actually it's that kind of cut is very bad for drivers and I, I will tell you why. Um, Sam, I was going to ask you how many miles you drive on a daily basis, but I know you work from home. <laughs> so, but I, you know, I, I have to go out, you know, pretty regular, you know, several times a week for meetings with clients and events and things like that. So, um, okay. Yeah. I'd, I'd say, you know, on average, you know, I'd probably drive, uh, you know, between two and 300 miles a week. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's a healthy amount. I think that that may be more than I do. Um, so of those miles, you know, do you, do you take note of how often you cross a bridge over a navigable body of water? Um, probably, you know, fewer, you know, fewer than 10 times a week. Wow. And, and you know, by, by navigable, you know, I mean, you know, like crossing the Huron River, you know, which can be navigated by canoe or kayak. Right. Okay. So I mean, maybe you'll be okay. Where, where, but where where I am here in <laughs> Southeast Michigan, there you know there aren't a whole lot of navigable bodies. I mean, there's navigable bodies of water, but not ones that I cross on it uh, in a car on any regular basis. Most of right. my crossings of those bodies of water are in aircraft. Oh yeah. Well, that that's a different federal agency. We're not yeah. talk, talking about right now. <laughs> Um, so out here I go across, you know, there's a few more rivers and generally they, they kind of lead to, um, the, the, the ports, uh, either way, those bridges, um, are under coast guard oversight. Even though the cars go over them, they cross the bodies of water where the boats need to go. The boats, you know, you 
you can stop a car, you can't stop boats. Anyway, like uh, so cutting it, and the Coast Guard only has a nine billion dollar budget. So if you cut one billion out of that nine billion dollar budget, uh, you're really hurting that agency. Um, and so it's, when, it's, you know, when you say they're under Coast Guard oversight, what is what does that mean? Is that I mean, is the Coast Guard responsible for maintaining those bridges or? I don't know. I had a conversation a few years ago with somebody from the Coast Guard about this because it's been an issue for a long time. But generally, they're very concerned about the condition of the bridges uh, because it impacts both certainly road traffic, but also it has a significant impact on uh, their activities related to you know commerce and national security and all the other things that the Coast Guard does. Uh, sure. I mean, you don't so, want bridges collapsing into those bodies of water that they're responsible for. Right. Which happens um, like on I-35, <laughs> you know, out where you, you know, that's not exactly where you are, but it's still, you know, like that's the biggest one I can think of recently. It's not a good scene to cut. I mean, $9 billion and they're going to take, take 1 billion away and give it to department of Homeland security to boost that budget to like 43 billion. Um, so you're made, it's basically a rounding error. It's, it's going, it's going to pay for the wall, but okay. The, the coast guard is more, is responsible for interceding uh, or, or, you know, intercepting, um, more drug traffic and, uh, you know, border crossing traffic than the wall. You know, they, they, they're both coasts of the continent or all coasts of the continent. Shall we say, uh, there's a lot of different ways of entering versus just that Southern border. So, uh, without tiptoeing too far into non-car stuff, uh, I will say that that, that one, that particular part of the budget, uh, well, it sounds like it doesn't have anything to do with us and cars has a ton to do with us and cars as a matter of fact. Um, so I'm watching that one kind of closely and, uh, I'm actually because the Coast Guard Academy was in the town I grew up in as well. So I'm kind of just like, I should probably make some phone calls and just be like, hey, you guys. Well, <laughs> you know, and, and considering, you know, I mean, a lot of cars, you know, come in through very, you know, come in by boat through various ports, uh, you know, in Baltimore and, and New York and or in New Jersey and Long Beach, and, you know, others, other places along and yeah, and Long Beach, you know, so on both the east and west coasts of the country, you know, uh, a lot of cargo comes in through those, including, you know, several million, you know, probably a couple of million cars a year. Uh, you know, and if those, if those ports, you know, if anything happens to those ports, you know, if they get blocked off, you know, that, um, you know, that restricts a lot of trade, uh, you know, and, and actually it's not just cars coming in a lot of cars, a, a lot of American built vehicles go out through right. those same ports well, as well. You know, let me just think about, you the know, like, trade. for example, oh, you know, be BMW's biggest plant in the world is their plant in Spartanburg, uh, South Carolina. Um, you know, they build more vehicles in Spartanburg. You know, they build about half a million vehicles a year in Spartanburg. Um, and more than half of those are exported, uh, um, you know, to other parts of the world. So they, you know, they build their X3, X5 uh, and X6 there. Um, and I believe they're also going to be building their new the new X7 there. And many of those are exported to the rest of the world and they go out through ports on the East coast of the country. How do they get out of Spartanburg? Do they go on rail first to, to a port? Yeah. Yeah. They take them by, by rail yeah. and, and possibly by truck as well um, to, uh, to the ports well, and then right. ship them out. 
so that's the thing like okay and actually i found it um the coast guard has jurisdiction over bridges which cross the navigable waters of the united states their authority relates to the location clearances of bridges bridge permits construction activities navigation lights and signals at bridges and the regulations which govern the operation of draw bridges okay um so it's they have a lot to do with bridges that cross water um that you know, are the things that trucks, which drive our uh, heavily retail-based economy, <laughs> you know, like we're, we're making stuff. We do actually make things in the U.S. And then it gets shipped by truck a lot um, because there's there's the last mile problem, too. So it'll it'll go on rail if it can get close to its destination because rail is a lot more efficient. Um, but then it's got to go on trucks from from unless unless your you know Target store has a, a rail spur, <laughs> which I haven't <laughs> seen one. Uh, my my local one does not have a rail line near nearby. So. Right. Uh, so it's got to go on trucks and those trucks carry the stuff to the stores. And yeah, so uh, it's a, it's a big deal. Like it's, it's you think Coast Guard. Yeah, not my thing. But um, yeah. And, and even inland too. like think about stuff like the Missouri and the Mississippi River in the middle of the country. Mm-hmm. So those are definitely navigable waters. And I guarantee you there's a lot of bridges that are. um structurally deficient uh we just our infrastructure just got a d plus uh grade i believe um and well yeah, we were that yeah, high? i was impressed it went up a little <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so there's there's and there's been talk of reinvestment in the infrastructure which is just desperately needed because we've basically waited a generation generation and a half to really pay attention to maintaining the stuff that was built 40 something years ago um you know construction really did tail off for for quite a while uh so yeah that just i mean that's that's stuck in my bond i don't want to belabor the point we can move on because we can talk about the uh the next the next fun thing so the rollback of the epa fuel economy standards which was you know floated today because uh the president was in your your neighborhood um was, was talking about that yeah he was uh just just a few miles from here uh Fortunately, I was somewhere else at the time um, at, a, at a conference on autonomous vehicles. But, uh, it, yeah, you know, he came to town to announce that uh, EPA was going to reopen the uh, midterm review of the fuel economy standards. So just as a, a quick refresher, um, you know, when they uh, set the new CAFE and, and greenhouse gas emission standards uh, back in uh, 2011, 2012, um, Part of that process, you know, they they initially set standards uh, for the period of 2012 uh, through 2020, um, and they decided that you know in a, they worked out a deal with the with the auto industry um, that they uh, between 2016 and 2018 they would do a, a midterm review, you know, taking a look at the progress that the industry was making on improving fuel efficiency. Um, and you know what the costs were, what the benefits were, um, and take a look at the the targets for 2020 through 2025, and see if they needed to make any adjustments. Um, you know that midterm review started um, in in early 2016, late 2015, and uh, was not due to be. You know it, they had a deadline to complete it by 2018, uh, but. What happened was in the waning days of the the Obama administration, um, they decided that they had enough data from, you know, from the initial part of the review that 
they they came to the conclusion that you know the industry was able to meet the existing targets uh you know which the overall corporate average fuel economy target was 54 and a half miles per gallon uh that they would be you know they had the technical capability to meet that and uh that it was economically feasible to to do so and so they left the targets you know as they as they were at that point and went ahead and um uh, finalize that for that 2020 to 2025 period. Um, the industry, of course, was, uh, or most of the industry was not too thrilled with that. Um, you know, in large part, you know, the, the issue that, you know, as we've lo- long had in this country with fuel economy standards is that, um, you know, the corporate average fuel economy was based only on dealing with the supply side, you know, basically mandating that the industry had to supply vehicles that met a certain uh, fuel economy requirement. But we've never done anything on the demand side to make sure that there would actually be consumer demand for those those types of vehicles, because, you know, obviously there as you, you know, to increase fuel economy, um, you know, there's some cost associated with that. Um, and. You know, in an environment where um, fuel is cheap, uh, consumers are less inclined to spend extra money on more fuel efficient vehicles um, if they're not going to realize any real savings or if the the payback period is so long because of cheap fuel prices that, um, you know, they don't see any benefit, any personal financial benefit to it. So in the absence of higher fuel taxes to keep the price of fuel up, you know, in in a world of cheap oil which is how the rest of the world right, which is how um in europe they 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 drove the demand um through taxation and i understand that uh in the u.s we don't we don't necessarily want to become a, as tax heavy as many european nations I, I i get that i don't like to pay taxes any more than than the next guy but uh you know making the demand for fuel economy without uh, the demand for fuel economy standards without you know, helping these companies, these private industries saying, you must do this, but you're just going to have to sell them with your charm. Um, is, is, it's a little disingenuous, so I can understand why automakers freak out every time this comes up and they say, well, we can't do it. People won't buy it and it's just not possible. Like, A, that's nonsense. It's absolutely possible. You've proven time and time again that it's, it is possible. Sometimes the costs increase and I can understand the business case of not wanting to cut your margins that thin or take a loss uh, for something that's just not going to get bought, but you Mm -hmm. have to build. I mean, we call them compliance cars, uh, you know, some of the hybrids. Uh, So it's kind of a sticky wicket. I, I get it. Um, But I, I also don't understand that, you know, like, we can, it doesn't hurt the, the jobs argument and stuff like that. It's killing the economy. Like I, that's one I just don't get because you have to employ people to make the cars, you know, clean and efficient just as well as you have to employ them to make the cars that are, you know, old school and filthy. So that, and you need more people to make them clean and efficient, like more engineers. And I, I don't know. It, it seems to me like it's, it's a little bit of a backward argument. Yeah, no. And I don't disagree. Um, you know, for for now, you know what they've done is they've just they haven't actually made any changes to the the targets. Um, you know what they announced today was that uh, they're going to reopen the midterm review and go back and and reevaluate the data. You know, I, I suspect that you know at some point, you know, in the next six to 
excuse me, next six to nine months, you know, we'll probably see them make an announcement that, you know, they're they're probably going to roll back um, the standards to some degree that, you know, they're not going to be able to completely eliminate fuel economy standards without an act of Congress, uh, because, you know, that was mandated under the 2007 energy bill uh, that was enacted under George W. Bush and signed into law by by President Bush. Um, so, you know, without without that, you know, because that that law mandated that they had to um, have a standard of at least 35 miles per gallon by 2020. Uh, so, you know, unless that gets repealed, um, you know, that's going to be as low as they can go. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them do that, you know, to roll it back to that 35 mile per gallon level, um, you know, beyond 2020. Uh, but, you know, the, and then the other thing is I think we've talked about before is, you know, they could just roll back the, you know, eliminate the penalties or, you know, significantly reduce the penalties for missing the targets so that the targets effectively become voluntary. Yeah, but then what's the incentive, you know? Well, I, there, maybe there's different ways to skin a cat too. I don't. I don't want to necessarily say like uh, because of my opinions, I'm completely opposed to any attempt to change this and maybe try a different approach. Um, well, I think I think what you know what's going to happen, you know, is by cutting the penalties for not hitting the targets. You know, because and I think you know again, we I think we've discussed this you know in the past couple of episodes. Uh, I think you know what they'll this you know whatever they do is not ultimately going to have a significant impact on their product development process. They're still going to develop these technologies because they, they need to do that for global markets anyway, as well as for California, you know, California still has their own standards in place, which, you know, currently are aligned with the federal standards, uh, at least as far as uh, CO2 emissions and, and fuel economy. Um, you know, so they still have to hit, you know, they still have to supply these vehicles for California. So they're, they're still going to be developing these technologies for both for California, as well as for the rest of the, you know, for global markets. Um, you know, what this will do is it will give them the free, the freedom to make some changes in their, uh, their marketing strategies, you know, so that, you know, if they, if the federal standards are reduced or effectively made voluntary, then that will let them sell, you know, more high margin, you know, SUVs and trucks um, that get lower fuel economy in other states. You know, so that'll help their bottom line and help offset, you know, the costs of, you know, providing these higher efficiency vehicles and, and electrified vehicles for California and the other states that follow the California standards. Yeah, it was just, I think there's like eight states or 10 states that follow. We certainly yeah, there's, there's nine, nine other California plus nine other states, mostly in the northeast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, and you know the the other thing that they that they said today was for for now at least they're not they have no plans to try to rescind California's waiver that allows them allows the state of California to go uh, you know to set standards above and beyond the federal standards. Oh, that's going to be a much uh, longer, more contentious fight. Yeah, and you know, I you know, I, I think that that one yeah. I think the the reason why they're not doing anything about that for now is because there is the potential, there's significant potential for that one to really backfire uh, on the federal government if they if they try to do that, because if that you know if that ends up going to the Supreme Court, which it almost surely will, um, you know, 
if, if it if that becomes a state's rights case, then I think that there's a strong chance that the Supreme Court could actually rule in California's favor, which is not something that um, the current administration wants to see happen. So I think they'd rather just leave that one as it is well, um, and, and not yeah. not go down that path for for now. I mean, these it's it's. The political winds are strange, you know, it's it's a group of states rights folks until it's not convenient for them to be states rights folks. <laughs> and they, yeah. like, you pick or choose, you know, are you for states rights? Because at that point, then California is completely justified. <coughs> uh, so and, and we've seen, you know, there's there's been 50 plus years of this stuff. So this is just the latest wrinkle. Um, it's yeah, it's, I mean, it's, this, this whole thing is far from over. Yeah. Uh, so it's another thing to sort of keep an eye on and, and watch it play out. It's also, uh, I'm curious to see what it does to the, the model mix, like you're talking about. And then just the, you know, the overall price of vehicles, you know, the market continues to just boom along too. um, you know, selling 18 something million cars a year. Uh, uh, it's about 17 and a half, but I mean, it's, it's actually, you know, last year was basically flat you know it was up only slightly from 2015 I thought last year was like the highest year ever maybe well it was but it but like not that. but not by much i mean it was it was up by about a hundred thousand or a little more than a hundred thousand units for the year um so you know and and this year you know they're they're on a pace for about the same for about 17 and a half million units this year uh right you know right now and you know i mean our, our projections you know at navigant um you know are you know it's sales aren't going to go a whole lot more than about 18 million, um, you know, over the next, you know, five to 10 years. Uh, you know, it's, it's going to be less than 1% growth annually for the, you know, for the next decade in the U S market. I mean, you, we're basically looking at, you know, a saturated market and, you know, it's not, we're not going to, you know, we're not going to hit 20 million anytime soon i i don't think yeah well if ever yeah there was a lot of pent-up demand uh too you know we we came off of the uh the 2008 downturn uh and i think was there's still a little even though we're into 2017 now there's there's still a little bit of hangover from that where it, it took people time to work up to being able to purchase a new car and and uh sort other financial things out so i, I mean I'm concerned and, about know, when the, it's the other thing to keep in mind too, you know, um, a lot of those, you know, that continued growth in sales has become, you know, they've, we've, there's been more subprime loans, you know, which is what got us into trouble a decade ago. Um, and we're also, you know, because the price of vehicles has gone up, we're seeing a lot more longer term loans, which, you know, is concerning to a lot of people in the industry. You know, it's, you know, it's not unusual to get 72 month and, and even 84 month loans on new cars now. I mean, you're, that's basically like getting a mortgage on a car. Well, and it's also asking for a real downturn in three, four years when everybody who sort of needed and wanted a car has one and they're married to it for the next f seven years. You know, right. like, yeah, I mean, you get, you get the combination of, you know, modern cars being more, more reliable, more durable and long-term loans, you know, where, you know, chances are you're going to be underwater, um, for a significant portion of that loan. Um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, we're, you know, we're, we're not likely to see, you know, much of any growth in the market for a long time to come. Well, that's an optimistic thought. <laughs> <laughs> So um, before before we leave this 
uh, subject entirely. Um, we did have uh, one question uh, that came in through Twitter this evening uh, from John um, that is related to this. And he said, you know, do you think the federal tax credit for purchasing an EV will be around for much longer given the new administration in Congress? Um, I think, you know, there, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, as part of, you know, the various changes, if they do eliminate the federal tax credit, um, certainly for some manufacturers, it's going to be going away anyway, um, you know, just because they're, you know, certainly, um, uh, you know, Tesla uh, and GM are both going to be hitting the two, you know, because the, the tax credit, you know, is limited to the first um, 200,000 sales. Uh, in the U.S. of plug-in vehicles, and both of them are going to be hitting that 200,000 mark probably, you know, sometime uh, in 2018, at which point it, you know, it gets phased out over the next uh, couple, next few quarters after that. Um, and Nissan, you know, probably will be, you know, sometime later in 2018, they'll hit that 200,000 threshold. So, you know, for those three companies, at least, um, you know, the, the tax credits are, are going to be going away probably before Congress does much of anything about it anyway. Um, other manufacturers are, you know, they're, they're not a lot further away from that 200,000 threshold. So they're more likely to be impacted by, uh, by elimination of that, te- of that credit. Well, those vehicles eventually have to stand on their own merit. Uh, anyway, I mean, oh, yeah. it, it, it does help to certainly spur adoption to have the, the tax credit. Uh, but we, we all kind of knew it wasn't going to be around forever anyway. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was always meant to be a, a temporary thing, you know, to just to jumpstart the market for EVs. Yeah. And certainly, you know, I think most people, um, you know, back in 2008, 2009, when they passed the, when they implemented that tax credit, you know, they, they certainly hoped that it would be, it would already be phased out by now, you know, that we would have already sold, you know, a lot more EVs than we have by this point, you know, but of course at that point, you know, we were also expecting gas to be $4 a gallon, um, you know, which would have helped spur some of the demand See, for those vehicles. Go back to my argument that we just need to act like there's another gas crisis. Um, because Dan, and if there isn't, we need to create that right. crisis. Dan always has the best ideas. Uh, I think it would be dumb to to uh, face it out just out of spite, though. I mean that that's the modern economy. That is that's new technology from manufacturing. You know, like that's everything you say you you want to put your money where your mouth is. And and it, another take would be to actually. Uh, extend the tax credits, increase the tax credits, uh, invest more in that to spur uh, the development and the adoption of those vehicles. I don't see it happening. Um, can can I move to your parallel universe? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a nice place, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's just another it, it feels like we're really trying to just like get yanked back to 1964. And I'm I, I like the music, you know, but I, I don't know that I want to stay there. So on on that uh, cheery note, <laughs> shall we wrap it up for this evening? Yeah, I was you know we didn't talk about Opal and uh, PSA and all that stuff, but, but yeah, they got sold. Yeah, PSA bought Opal yeah. for a couple of billion dollars. Yep for 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 a lot less than uh, Intel paid for Mobileye. Yep, that's kind of crazy. Uh, yeah, Walmart's worth more. Yeah, cool. 
<laughs> Lots of things are worth more um, than Opal. I, yeah. <laughs> if they make nice driving cars, though, they sure do. Yeah. Um, we uh, we had one more question. I think it was on Facebook. I'm trying to bring it up real quick here because uh, I'm real slow with the Facebook. Uh, but in the meantime, you can shoot us an email or drop us a line on the Twitters or uh, actually at Facebook. Uh, we are facebook.com slash wheelbearings. Uh, stand by and I will try to bring up the. And and, the and while Dan's doing that, I'll remind you uh, that uh, the site is at wheelbearings.media, uh, which you probably already know if you're listening to this. Um, but there's a link there if you want to shoot us email or uh, just send it to wheelbearingscast at gmail.com. Um, you can find us on Twitter at uh, wheelbearingscast uh, minus um, all but one of the vowels. Um, and uh, uh, what else? Uh, let's see. Tell all your friends uh, to listen to the show. Um, we're, we're, uh, uh, you can get us on iTunes and we appreciate the uh, all the positive reviews on iTunes. We, we that's come, it's very helpful. Um, you can also find us on uh, TuneIn and Google Play Music, and uh, or just you know put us in your favorite podcatcher. Yeah, and you know what? We did such a good job wrapping up, and I can't find the question anyway. So let's just we'll call it a night, and we'll right. answer the question next week. Uh, but yeah, thanks everybody. And and uh, next week I'll tell you all about driving the Ford Focus RS. Awesome. All right. Good night. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.